Why do we exist? To know the glory of God and to give glory to God. God didn't need us. He created us to reveal Himself to us and how infinitely perfect He is in so many ways, in an infinite number of ways, for us to delight in Him and revel in Him, to praise and to worship and thank Him for all that He is. The first commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. First commandment in the Bible, we're told that it ranks at the top. Do you know Him? And do you love Him? Do you adore Him? And do you delight in Him? We cannot take up a more important subject. It could be studied a number of different ways. But I want to finish it in this way. Our God is not only infinite. He is not only invisible, immortal, independent, immense, intelligent, invincible, immutable, and incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. But He is a number of other things as well that is even more comforting to us. This great God, this infinite, immense, eternal, immortal, invisible being, this great God is also these things. He is knowable. Amen. He is knowable. Look at Psalm 19. I'm just going to declare it to you because of time. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no language where their voice is not heard. The heavens declare God's glory in every language, in every dialect, for every man to look up and realize that there is a great God. God created us, and then He created the natural creation for us to look at it and know that there is a great God. The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the truth about God was revealed to men in the natural creation, but they rejected it. And therefore God gave them over to reprobate minds. We were created to know Him. This great God created us to know Him. And He revealed Himself through the creation. He revealed Himself through the Word of God. He revealed Himself through Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God. Right. He reveals Himself to us by His Spirit. He reveals Himself to us by our enlightened consciences. He does all these things because He's knowable. He is not only invincible, which as was prayed could be frightening, He is knowable, which should be comforting. God wants you to know Him. We were saved to know Him. Look at Jeremiah and chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24 and verse 7. These, these are the covenant promises that God has made for His people. Jeremiah 24, 7. And I will give them an heart to know Me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be My people, and I will be their God for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. What I want you to notice is God's promise, and it's fulfilled most perfectly in the New Testament. I will give them an heart to know me that I am the Lord. The, the new covenant says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. They shall not have to teach every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. And that's an internal knowledge that we have of God in our regenerate new man that God's given to us. He is knowable. 
John chapter 17, verse 3 tells us why we're saved. That we might know Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. That is why God gave us eternal life, is for us to know God. Without eternal life, we cannot know Him. But that's why we were saved. Because He is knowable. He is not just invincible. He's not just eternal. He's not just immortal. He's knowable. Thank God that He's knowable. And thank God for your creation that you understand its purposes. For you to know Him. You should delight in knowing Him. The reason your heart is beating right now is for you to know the God of heaven. He is knowable. It gets better. Just hold on. Enoch and Noah and others walked with God. That's how knowable He is. He came and walked in the cool of the evening in the Garden of Eden where Adam was. He can take up a personal relationship with men because He's knowable. He can be known. And He knows us. Eliphaz is the one that encouraged us to acquaint now thyself with Him. That is to know Him and to be at peace and thereby good shall come unto thee. He is knowable. Let's get. Let's make it better. Look at Psalm 65. Psalm 65 and verse 4. He is approachable. You can approach the Almighty God. When you consider His omniscience and you consider His omnipotence, you consider His immensity and His eternality, and you find out that you are so inadequate, what does the Bible say? How, do the, how does the Bible put it? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't reach Him. Therefore, He appears unapproachable until we read the Word of God and find out that He's very approachable. Psalm 65 and verse 4 puts it this way. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. God makes a choice of men to approach unto him. He is approachable. This is fantastic information. This is a wonderful truth of the gospel that the great God of heaven that we have described for us as being so exceedingly superior to all other gods, even those of the imaginations of men's minds, is approachable. You can go right up to Him, and we're not yet done. You can go up to and approach this great God, because there is a daysman between us, and it's no daysman on earth. All the gods on earth have priests of their own making. And you cannot approach a Hindu god. You cannot approach a Muslim god. You cannot approach a Catholic god without a priesthood between you and that god. And that priesthood extracts from you whatever he wants to. We have no priest because you are a priest. He has made us kings and priests. We're royalty to approach the high king of heaven. We're priests. To be able to approach the holy God of heaven. Because there's a daysman who can put his hand on each of us. As Job 9.33 describes it. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is very approachable by the one mediator that there is between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. God, God has reconciled us to himself. We are no longer enemies. We can approach him. We're, not just, re- we're just not in a neutral position now before him. We are his sons and his daughters. We can approach God as His own Son. And He sheds that love of God abroad in our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. To encourage us, He gives us the Holy Spirit, whereby we look at God. He is my Father. I can go to Him and call upon Him as my Daddy. And He will will deliver me. He will rescue me. He will bless me. 
The Bible says in James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. How is that for approachability? That's God approaching you when you try to approach Him. You will not get all the way to God if you go with the right heart, because God will come and meet you on the way there. The rest of that verse goes on to say, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. If you're double-minded, if you love the things of this world and the things of God, you're never going to approach unto God. You don't even know what I'm talking about. Or it's something that occurred in your past or my past that we've lost. The same verse, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. But when you come with a single mind, God will approach you while you're approaching Him. Isn't that wonderful? When When we're at enmity with somebody and we approach them, there's always that fear in our minds, I may get rejected. But when we approach God, there's no fear of being rejected because He's promised to come and meet us. If we'll draw nigh to him in the way that he describes, let's make it better. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This poor text has been corrupted by 99.99% of all the men that have ever read it or heard it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. You want to have the Lord over for a carpet picnic? Revelation 3.20 says he's standing at the door. That text is bandied about as getting people into heaven. There isn't one bit of eternal life or salvation in Revelation 3.20 or in 19 or in 21 or in 18 or in 22 or in 17, 16, 15, and 14 because the whole passage is the Lord Jesus Christ addressing the church at Laodicea and telling them they thought too highly of themselves without a personal relationship with the God of heaven through his son Jesus Christ. And they needed to get off their high horse and realize that they were naked, they were poor, and they were wretched. Without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how approachable he is. Now, how approachable is it when the great God of heaven is standing, knocking at a door, and if you'll just hear his voice because he's trying to gain entrance for a personal relationship with his children, when you invite him in, when you open that door, when you hear his voice, he will come in and will sup with you. He'll come over for supper. Supping in the Bible is communion. It's fellowship. It's what Abraham and Melchizedek did. It's what Abraham and the Lord did in the cool of the day at the opening of his tent when Sarah fixed them a meal. The Lord wants to have that kind of fellowship and communion with us. That is approachable. This great God in whom we are to glory and and whose glory we are to consider is that approachable. Suffer my words that I've chosen. He is divisible. Don't think that I'm creating some new doctrine that we're going to end up with multiple gods. He is divisible in the sense that He can be your God personally and fully while He's my God personally and fully. And that is an incredible extension of Himself to each man. David could say, for God is my God. But you can say the same thing. Because He was David's God and He still is David's God. And he can be our God. He is divisible. A righteous man can claim God as his own personal God. Look what Moses and Miriam sang in Exodus 15. Exodus 15. We don't want to divide God up and end up with more than one God. 
But we want to understand that he's able to be your God fully and personally while he is fully and personally another person's God and another person's God. And that just, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want him to be deluded. I, I want all of God. I want, and I believe you want all of God. We don't want him deluded by the fact that he has a million elect or ten million elect or a hundred million elect. We want all of them. Here's what they sang in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare Him in habitation, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Notice those expressions of them being so personal, because God was their individual God. Abraham was called the friend of God. How can one man be called the friend of God? Is it possible for us to also be the friend of God, or would that make it friends of God, and then it would violate Scripture? We can all be like Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God, because he was so close to God and he walked with God. And it's what we desire. The divisibility of God is his personal relationship with each of those that are his own, and that pursue that relationship with him, which Abraham did. You know, Paul said, all men forsook me when he went on trial, but the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with Paul. Were there others, do you think, in the world at that time that the Lord was standing with as well? Because he was divisible. He was with Paul and he was with others as well. Did David once say, because he liked me? Did, did David say that in First Chronicles 28 and verse 4? Does God like anyone else? He's divisible. Brethren, rejoice in this fact. Is he your God? As so many scriptures declare, look at Psalm 18, 2. Psalm 18, 2. We sing Psalm 18. Some of you love Psalm 18. Look at what God's... Look at, look at verses 1 and 2. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. Here's David's personal relationship with the great God of heaven. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress... And my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. Usually when we go through that second verse, we start listing all the things that God uses to describe himself. But I want you to notice that there's a pronoun in each one of those little phrases where it's my. Every single one has a my. He's my fortress. He's my buckler. That's how divisible he is. He was David's God. When David was in battle, he knew that the God of heaven was with him. In all these ways were his personally. He doesn't say our God, our buckler, our fortress, though those things were true as well. He's claiming it personally. And it doesn't just say that God is a rock, fortress, deliverer, a God, and, and, and strength. It's my, it's personal. He's divisible. He's forgivable. How can a great God that we describe, and we haven't even touched on his moral attributes. The moral attributes of God are things like holiness and righteousness and justice. Those aspects of his nature that require him to hate sin. We haven't even dealt with them. But just looking at the greatness of God and the glory of God and the eternality of God and his immortality and his infinity. He is a forgiving God. His forgivability is what we want to remember about him. And this is what he has to say about it. 
My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heaven is higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways higher than your thoughts and your ways. And that's Isaiah 58, 8, 9. But what's he talking about there? And we've been there before, so I know you know it. He's talking about God's forgivability and His abundant pardon from verses 6 and 7 of Isaiah 55. God is forgivable. He forgives us. He is, has forgivability. Praise His holy name. Without that, what would we do with an eternal, immortal, invisible, invincible God? One that is also holy, just, and righteous. We would be without hope in the world. But instead we can be filled with hope. So the Bible would say in Psalm 130 in verses 4 and 5, There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. That forgivability that God has causes us to fear Him in the godly way. If He didn't have that forgivability, we would fear Him in an ungodly way by running from Him rather than repenting and coming to Him. Praise His holy name that this great God... You do not have to dwell on the glory of God and become afraid of Him so that when you sin, you tend in the opposite direction. Because of His forgiving nature, through Christ Jesus our Savior, you can run to Him and be forgiven. Look at the great sinners that ran to Him and were forgiven. How long did it take Him to forgive Zacchaeus? Let me put it this way. Less time than it took anyone in the crowd to forgive Him. When Jesus called Zacchaeus down out of the sycamore tree and the short little man stood there before him, what did the whole crowd do? The whole crowd murmured against him because they knew he was a thief. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this man's house. I'm going home with you, Zacchaeus, to have lunch. Forgivability. Who else do you want to think about? The great sinner in Luke chapter 7 that came and anointed Jesus' feet, Mary Magdalene, David. Do you know how long it took for David to obtain forgiveness of the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 12? I have forgiven thee, thou shalt not die. Forgivability of the great God of heaven. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32, I want you to know something about the Lord. He loves forgiveness. His forgivability is immense. It's something he delights in. He takes pleasure in forgiving sinners. That's why Jesus came for sinners. That's why Paul would say, I was the chief of sinners, and Jesus Christ saved me so that I could be a pattern to every single person that believes on him from here on out. If God could save me through Jesus Christ, he can forgive and save anyone. Paul made that appeal in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at Jeremiah 32, verse 41. Yea, God speaking about Israel, I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. This is the Lord God having mercy upon Israel after taking them captive and punishing them by the Babylonians for 70 years. He said, I will bring them back. I will bring them back and I will rejoice over them. I won't begrudge them because the 70 years is up and now I have to bring them back because I made the promise that after 70 years in Babylon I would bring them back. I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly 
with my whole heart and with my whole soul. When you confess your sins and go to God and ask Him to forgive you, He rejoices over that forgiveness. The Bible tells me that the angels that He created that are always doing His will rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repents. You know what you melancholies do? You know how I know what you melancholies do? Because I do the same thing. How can the Lord forgive me that easily? Do you know why you, you, you find it hard to believe that uh, He forgives you that easily? Because you don't forgive that easily. Or because I don't forgive that easily. But that's why His ways and His thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. Is that comforting? Yes, because you know what? When we can learn to forgive others, and we know that the Lord is still ahead of us because His ways and thoughts are as high as the heaven is above the earth, then we know that when we confess our sins, He forgives us. These are things you already know, but I want you to think about the forgivability of God. He loves to forgive. If you go to God and confess your sins and say, God couldn't forgive me that easily, that's the 18th time, or that's the 18,000th time I've confessed that sin. He couldn't forgive me that easily. I want to tell you where that thought's coming from. And it's not the Holy Spirit, and it's not you. It's a fiery dart of the devil. Because God loves and rejoices over sinners that repent. If he told us to forgive 70 times 7, what do you think the number is for him? Since his ways and thoughts are higher than our ways and thoughts. They were so much that Paul just said, with the mind I myself serve the law of Christ, but with the flesh the law of sin. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Forgivability. Thank you, Lord. Can you find the little book of Micah? I showed you this verse not too long ago, but I, I got a pleasant response from it. And I'd like you to see it again. Micah chapter 7. It's in front of Nahum. Micah 7.18. Who is a God like unto thee? This is our subject. Micah 7.18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? And passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. God doesn't stay angry forever. The God of heaven that should, that could, that is just, that is holy, that is righteous, through Jesus Christ, is also forgivable. He he has forgivability. And he delights in mercy. And he pardons iniquity. When you go to him, believe those things. Can we pick on, can we find some more things that are pleasant about this great God that we worship? He is knowable. He is approachable. He is divisible. He's forgive, he has forgivability. How about his generosity? How good is he? No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Those that delight in him, he will give them the desires of their heart. That's pretty generous. No good thing, the desires of their heart. His tender mercies are over all His works. His goodness is over all His works. Acts 14 and verse 17, Even the wicked know that in the day of harvest He fills their hearts with food and gladness as a testimony and a witness that God is good. The one expression in the Bible, The good Lord pardoned every one of them. Hezekiah prayed when he observed the Lord's Passover out of order the second month of the year. Instead of the first month of the year, he said, The good Lord Pardon every one of them. Did it work? Yes, because the Lord is good. And the Lord knew that Hezekiah was not foolishly or presumptuously observing that 
Passover out of order, but because he didn't want to have to wait a whole year when they hadn't observed it in so long. And the Lord directed him. The good Lord pardoned every one of them. Because the Lord is so generous and gracious. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Should be enough. That's an axiom of the universe. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6.1 Don't need any more. God said it. That settles it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Is the commandment enough? Should he be able to just give us the commandment? Should he just declare the rule? Did God create parents? Did he create children infinitely inferior to parents? Yes, yes, yes. Is it the orderly foundation of society that children obey parents? Yes. Does it lead to obeying other forms of authority? Yes. But he doesn't end there, does he? Because this great God is generous. So though he lays out an axiom of the universe that should be so simple for us to accept and obey, understand and submit to, he says, Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Notice what God did. He gave us a commandment that should be enough, but he goes and adds more because he's so generous. He adds a commandment that if you'll do this, I will bless you with a long life and a good life if you'll honor your father and your mother. He doesn't have to give us verses 2 and 3. He could have shortened the Bible. Do you know how short the Bible would be if he pulled out all of his promises and rewards and blessings offered? It would shrink right up because God is full of generosity and loving kindnesses. He doesn't need to offer us that. He should just tell us, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Or I'll pluck your eyeballs out with the eagles of the valley and all the other things that he says. But he doesn't. He says, if you'll obey your parents, it'll be well with you and your life will be long on the earth. I love thinking about that aspect of God and how he's written his word. Does he have enough? Does he have enough to take care of everyone if everyone honored their parents? But my, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Philippians 4.19. He's able to cover Anything and provide anything for us that we need. More could be said on the generous nature of God, His loving kindnesses, His tender mercies that He pours out upon us and bestows upon us every day. The fatness that we do live in and that we enjoy by His great mercy. But He, let's go on, He is sensitive. The sensitivity of God, meaning He empathizes with us. And the, look at how the Bible puts this in Isaiah 63 and verse 9. Isaiah 63 and verse 9. The sensitivity of God. Is He sensitive to what you feel? Is He sensitive to what you know? What you're experiencing in your life? The Bible wants us to know about this great God that while He's immense, while He's invincible, while He's infinite, immortal, and so on, He is very sensitive. Praise His holy name. This can work to our advantage and disadvantage. It can work to our blessing and to our cursing. But look at Isaiah 63, 9. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. 
Some of you like verse 7 because it describes the loving kindnesses of the Lord, but I wanted verse 9 because in all their affliction, He was afflicted. God is afflicted as His children are afflicted on earth. That is a wonderful thing about this incredibly great, glorious being, the Creator God of heaven and earth, the Almighty, is sensitive. When Israel sighed in Egypt by reason of their bondage, their sighing came up into heaven. And that generation didn't have much in the way of faith. They just had a lot in the way of pain. They didn't believe Moses could get them out. They didn't believe they could get through the Red Sea. They didn't believe Moses should go and irritate Pharaoh. Read about those Israelites. And yet their sighing came up into heaven. He is sensitive. It gets better. Look at Psalm 56. How sensitive is he? How much does he really take care? How much does he really feel the details of my life? Well, let's remember that not a sparrow can fall from heaven that he doesn't know about. Not a sparrow. And he says, ye are of more value than many sparrows, and the very hairs of your head are numbered. That's at a detail level that none of us know each other or care about each other. You have not been over to my house to worry about the sparrows falling in my backyard, and neither do you know the number of hairs on my head. But the God of heaven does. And I'm thankful that he uses his intelligence for something so wonderful to keep track of every detail of my life, and not a hair of my head shall perish without the government of my God for His glory and my profit. Isaiah 56 and verse 8, Thou tellest my wanderings. Tellest in the Bible is counting them. You know them. You count them. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? David knew that his tears and his wanderings were in God's book about his life. And he asked him to put his tears into God's bottle. God has a bottle that David could trust in that would store his tears because God sees tears. And his wanderings. And he puts them in his book. Recognition and note is made of the sufferings in your life when, the, when you're sighing and your troubles come up into the God of heaven. Verses like this take this great and glorious God and bring Him down to be the sensitive, loving, compassionate, merciful, pitiful, redeeming Father that we have in heaven. He has our tears in His bottle. The Bible says, casting all your cares upon Him. On what basis? Because He's immortal? Because He's invincible? Because He's infinite? Because He cares for you. Cares? He knows me because He's omniscient. No, he cares. He is sensitive. He empathizes with us. So much so that he has a book, a book of remembrance written in Malachi chapter 3, that if you in your life have found it to be difficult to speak of the things of the Lord with others because most people want to speak about the things of the world, but you speak often one to another because you fear God and you speak about the things of the Lord, he writes your name in his book. And in his book of remembrance, in the day when he judges men, you will be his jewels. That is Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Its direct and foremost fulfillment was in the destruction of Jerusalem when a great distinction was made between those that feared God and those that didn't. But the principle is still active and alive that God makes a difference in men's lives by how they treat him and how they speak about him to others. He is sensitive. And when he sees us loving him and delighting in him and encouraging others to delight and to love him, 
he will never forget. He is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. He's reliable, meaning he's faithful. Do you know what the Bible says? It says this, but God is faithful. Who will also do what he has promised. First Thessalonians 5, 24. God is faithful. You know, every one of us, remember, he was immutable. But now we're calling this reliable. He was immutable in that he never changes. He's not like man. He doesn't lie. and He doesn't repent. He doesn't change his mind. But he's reliable. You can count on him because the Bible tells you to count on him. He, as I just quoted from Hebrews 6.10, he is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. He's reliable. If you do something for him, he'll never forget it. He'll, for, he'll remember it when you've forgotten it. According to Matthew 25, when we stand before Jesus Christ in the great day of judgment. He does not change. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He made that promise. Why did he need to make that promise? Remember what I said about the Bible? If you took the promises and the blessings away, it would shrink in half. There are so many of them. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The reliability of God, you can count on him. This great immense being, since he's eternal, I guess, does that give me comfort that I can count on him? In that he's eternal? I get greater comfort from the fact that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because I like his immutability and eternality associated with his compassion. And his approachability. Because he's my friend. I want to be the friend of God, not for today, not for tomorrow, but for the rest of my life and into eternity. So it's the combination of this all coming together. The great God of heaven. We're not talking about Jupiter or Hercules. Go Anyway, go read about Hercules. That's just the Greeks and their ignorance coming up with uh, a little bit about Samson. We, we don't care about Jupiter or Hercules. We don't care about Rama or, or, or Krishna of the Hindus or any other god. We have the great god of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, beside whom there is no other, and against whom none can be compared to him. But he has compassion and he's sensitive. He's reliable. We can count on him. He is our God forever, is how the Bible puts it. Praise his holy name. He is accountable. You say, are you going to make God accountable to us? No, I'm not going to make him accountable to us. I'm going to make him accountable to his word. And he wants you to do the same thing. Listen to this. Look at, I'm, I'm saving time. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20 are eight verses that describe that God, when he made promise to Abraham, did not just make a promise. He swore with an oath so that by two immutable things, the heirs of eternal life might have a strong consolation to trust in two things that are immutable about God. First of all, when God makes a promise, it's going to come to pass. But in case that promise wasn't enough for you to have your hope fully established on a solid rock foundation and your storm in the sea of life with an anchor that's resting on the bottom, he swore with an oath. And because he could not swear by anyone else, he had to swear by himself. And so those eight verses are describing why men swear and why God swore was to give us two things by which we could hold him accountable. The great God of heaven, I promised I would save you and not lose a single one of you. And I make an oath that I will not do it. That in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, including some in Greenville, South Carolina, in the 21st century. Praise His glorious name. He makes Himself accountable to Himself by swearing upon Himself. He says in Jeremiah 33, when you can get rid of my covenant with the day and the night, that there is no longer a day and a night, then you can get rid of my covenant that I'm going to save every one. Through the seed of David. 
He challenges men to prove his faithfulness. In Malachi chapter 3, when he calls men robbers for having not given their tithes and offerings in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, in Malachi chapter 3, he said, prove me, try me herewith, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. He's making himself accountable to promises that he gives in the word of God. Try me. He doesn't have to prove anything. He is God. And if he wants tithes and offering in his storehouse, bring me the tithes and offerings into my storehouse. But he says, try me and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you can't receive. Now, if you've given 10% in a tithe to the Lord and he pours you out a blessing that buries you, who gave the most? If you gave up 10%, but what came back buried you, did the 10% bury you? Because he's made himself accountable. Like in Ephesians 6, 3, we'll, we'll obey and honor our parents. He will bless us with a long and a good life. Like Matthew chapter 6, where he says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, all these things the Gentiles worry about, I'll add them to you. Don't take any thought for tomorrow. I'll take thought for it myself. And you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to hold him accountable and rest on that promise. Seek first, because that's hard. You know, we think, listen, I need to plan out what I'm going to eat and drink and wear tomorrow and the next day and the next day. I need to see it. And the Lord says, no, don't give any thought to that. Don't give any worry or fretting about that. Serve me today and put the kingdom of God and his righteousness first in your life and I'll take care of all those things. And he's made himself accountable to his own promises. I call that his assurability or his accountability. You know, when the Bible says there is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase, that's a promise of God. There's only one being that can make that happen. Because when you throw stuff away, it doesn't add to what you had. There's only one being that can do that. And he said, the whole Bible is one of, trust my word. Right. His compatibility. Do you want to hear? Do you, listen. He created you in his likeness and in his image. We corrupted that, but he restored it in Christ Jesus. He restored it this much. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we are changed from image to image, from glory to glory, even under the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 18. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 says that we are made partakers of the divine nature. We are not little gods, like the Mormons might believe, but we have a new man that is inside of us that has some of the moral nature of God himself. We are partakers of the divine nature. The new man that we have is created in righteousness and true holiness. I want somebody to bring me a religion that has a God like the God of the Bible that makes you and me worms at best to be partakers of the divine nature. My Bible tells me that we have the mind of Christ. That's a decent mind. That is an infinitely glorious mind. And he has given us enough of his mind that we can know the will of God. We have been taught in the inside. We have the word of God. And that if we will humble ourselves to the spirit of God and the word of God, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 The Bible tells me that we, know, uh, that we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. How is that for compatibility? God said that he foreknew and predestinated us that Jesus Christ might have many brethren in the kingdom of God. 
And he has already given us a nature like the Son of God. And he is going to give us an appearance like the Son of God. And we are going to be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. How is that for compatibility? Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. The God of heaven that we talked about in the first assembly is this kind of a God in the second assembly. And he sends that spirit into our hearts, proving to us that we're the children of God. His humanity. We always want to end with the glory going to Jesus Christ. Do you know, when we talk about compatibility, in Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us that, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Let me say those words again to make sure you got them. This is about Jesus Christ. Pope Benedict XVI is not our priest. The Lord Jesus Christ is our priest. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a faithful and a merciful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, He is able to succor them that are tempted. How is that for compatibility? How in the world? This is the wisdom and the power of God. The Bible says that when you're born again and you hear the preaching of God's Word, you see and hear in those words the power and the wisdom of God. The power of God to save us and the wisdom of God and how He did it. How He did it. Praise His glorious name. The Lord Jesus Christ is like you and me and God is making us to be like Him. And we're going to be heirs of God. The angels will be our servants like they're His servants. The incarnation takes on such great importance when we understand the great God and His approachability is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was made flesh and dwelt among us without controversy. Great is this mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The eternal, immortal, invisible, immutable, invincible, Independent, infinite God walked on this planet 2,000 years ago in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Lord Jesus Christ sits at God's right hand and is our priest forever, making us it's so approachable to God that with boldness we can go to the throne of grace and obtain mercy and grace to help in our time of need. What a Savior we have. What a God we have. And what has He done for us that we should be called the sons of God? Behold, what manner of love This Father hath this... Father! He's the immutable God. He's the infinite God. He's the incomprehensible God. He's the inscrutable God. Behold what love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Brethren, this is the doctrine of adoption. This is the theology of the Bible. The science of knowing God. And it is a science based on revelation. It's in writing. You don't need to experiment with it. You don't need to philosophize about it. It's in writing. Praise His holy name. He's approachable. He's sensitive. He's for, he has forgivability. He's divisible in that He's your God and He's my God and we have all of His attention so that He doesn't lose details about your life while He's taking care of details in my life. Praise His holy name. Do you love this God? Do you know Him? Do you let the things of this world distract you from Him? The reason you were created, the reason your parents came together, and the combination resulted in your soul, spirit, and body being put together is for you to know the God of heaven and to love Him as the first and the great commandment. And without it, your life is vain, your life is empty. You will accomplish nothing. And you will suffer the wrath of God because He will get glory upon all of His creatures. 
one way or another, in them or on them. Let's make it in us through Jesus Christ our Lord by giving Him that act of glory that He deserves. Make this knowledge of God the greatest pursuit of your life. It will serve you well. There's no greater object for your life. There's no greater pleasure. Acquaint now thyself with Him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Amen. Amen.